and welcome to Deep Dive. I'm Laura Arnold. We record this episode at a critical time in our country's history. Terrorists recently attacked our center of government. Donald Trump has become the only president in history to be impeached twice. At this hour, our democracy is under unprecedented assault, unlike anything we've seen in modern times. Something's not working. Something is broken. And if we don't have the strength to look in the mirror and fix it, the American people are going to grow more and more cynical. Fewer than 20% of Americans trust the government in Washington to do what's right. More than three-fourths of Americans believe the country is more divided now than it was before the pandemic, a divide that stands out in the world. In this episode, we'll talk about potential solutions to the crisis in our democracy. We'll look at three specific proposals. We'll start with primaries. And you have to get your people to fight. And if they don't fight, we have to primary the hell out of the ones that don't fight. Primary the hell out of them. That's the threat. We'll dig into what that means and what we as a democracy can do about it. Second, we'll analyze a different way to tally votes in elections. Ranked choice voting. People are curious about this idea, but they haven't really heard much about it before. We'll consider how it impacts the voters. Your first choice is the candidate you love, the second choice is the candidate you like, and the third choice is your candidate that you can stand. And how it impacts the lawmakers. The thing that you see is the politicians coming back into the center and talking about ideas that are actually very popular amongst the electorate. And lastly, we'll talk about legislative process. Only 1% of proposed legislation in Congress ever gets approved by a vote. The Senate blames the Speaker of the House. Sadly for the country, sadly for struggling Americans, Speaker Pelosi stalled and stalled for weeks. And the House blames the majority leader in the Senate. They just waited, what, 10 weeks, two and a half, almost two and a half months. They put it all on pause. But the real villain is something called the Hastert Rule. The Hastert Rule says that a bill doesn't come to the floor of the House without a majority of the majority. That's today's show. Three important details, three deep dives. I'm pleased to be here today with a thought leader in the field of democracy reform. Catherine Gale is the founder and chair of the Institute of Political Innovation, and along with Michael Porter, the author of the book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Laura, thank you. I'm really happy to have an opportunity to talk to you and have this conversation, especially as I and so many Americans feel alone in our angst right now. So, Catherine, let's start with the electoral system. So the first prong of your thesis, explain to us what you see as a dysfunction. A key problem, the first order problem, is that we have party primaries. So you can't have your name on the November ballot unless you win your Republican primary or your Democrat primary. And party primaries are low turnout elections. About 15% of the electorate turns out in a party primary, half voting in the Democrat primary and half voting in the Republican primary. And voters who turn out for party primaries tend to be far more ideological than the electorate as a whole, meaning they are further to the right, they're further to the left than even where the rest of their party is. And the effect this has is that it pushes the candidates running in the primary to run farther to the left, farther to the right, 
than maybe they would like to. Party primaries are the reason so many people show up at the general election and think, how come I don't like these choices I have? Because the decision was already made and it was made by people who don't represent the whole. And of course, candidates know this, and probably more importantly, party officials know this. So if you fast forward to the time when the elected official makes it to Congress or to to the Senate and tries to do something, it is very important and becomes increasingly important for that person to vote the party line. Because if he or she doesn't vote the party line, then what happens? Yeah, they can be threatened with a primary. Right. That's actually a verb now, right? You get primary. It's a verb. And it didn't used to be a verb. And now it is. And what that means is that the elected official is answering to that small portion of the electorate that votes in their party's primary. But then they're also answering to party leadership who are the ones that are able to say, we'll get the money in there to kick you out in your primary if you don't do what we want. So who they're not answering to is the general electorate, the citizens. And that is why we're not seeing the results, because they can't afford to pay attention to the general electorate. Yeah, I mean, and we can see numerous examples, I think, on both sides of the aisle of people being, quote unquote, primaried and and really instilling fear within many lawmakers to toe the line. The one that comes to mind immediately, Eric Cantor course, former House Majority Leader, who was successfully primaried by a Tea Party Republican in 2014 after agreeing to take steps forward in a bipartisan way on immigration. And that uh, was, I believe, a contributing factor to freezing the discussions on immigration on the Republican side for many, many years, because it was a real consequence. Moments before the raid on the U.S. Capitol at the Save America March rally, President Trump, what did he say to his supporters? He said he wants to, quote, primary the hell out of the people who don't object to Congress's certification of the Electoral College results. So the parties know the party leadership understands the power of the primary in dictating the agenda and the actions of the of the elected officials who are members of their party. No question. And coming back again to the reason we're talking, which is what could we do about it? We have to stop just talking about how it's used by the party, which again, it's now it's in the media. They're talking about so-and-so is going to be primaried or reporting on President Trump's threat that he's going to primary these people. And we have to start talking about, oh, how could we take that weapon away from people using it for these self-interested, narrow purposes. So let's talk about your solution. Let's talk about what you think we can do about it. What we can do is we can get rid of it. So what's really fascinating is party primaries are not in the Constitution. One of the things I do when I'm in front of audiences in person is I often hold up a Constitution because we all of a sudden are reminded that it's this little pocket Constitution, meaning All you have to do is look at it and know that all these rules aren't in there because they would never fit. The proposal that I favor is that we eliminate party primaries where you have one Democrat and one Republican advancing. And instead, we have a nonpartisan open primary where all the candidates, no matter their party, independents, Republicans, Democrats, Greens, et cetera, they all run on the same ballot. Voters go to the primary, they pick their favorite, just like always, and then you count all the votes and the top 
five finishers advance to the general election. So now between primary and general election, we have a dynamic and diverse campaign with five candidates representing different ideologies, visions, histories, constituencies. And right away, you don't know who's going to win because it wasn't decided in the primary. Then when you go to the general election, we have the second piece of our of our innovation agenda, and that is to take those five candidates and use a ranked choice voting ballot so that the voters in the general election get to list their preferences in order. Catherine is a big proponent of ranked choice voting, and that's going to be our second deep dive of the day. Most of our elections are simple plurality, so the person who gets the most votes wins. With ranked ballots, you rank all the candidates from your preferred option down to your least favorite. On election night, all the first choice votes are counted. And if any candidate has 50% plus one, then that candidate wins. If no one has a majority, you drop the candidate with the least number of first place votes. Then all the second place votes on those ballots will be added to the other tallies. You keep doing that until a candidate emerges with more than 50% of the votes. It's like a runoff election, if you're familiar with those, but you don't have to keep going back to the polling station for each round. You enter your first, second, third, all your choices at once. The result is a winner that has at least some degree of support from the majority of voters. Now, in a lot of cases, the person who wins in a simple plurality would also win under this system. But Catherine believes we gain something even more important, something deeper. The key benefit of moving to ranked choice voting ballots is that we get rid of the spoiler argument. And I'll have to explain for a moment. I think a lot of people may wonder why, since so many people are dissatisfied with Democrats and Republicans, we never have any other choices. And the reason it doesn't happen is because whenever someone new tries to start up, like a new kind of Republican or a new kind of Democrat or an independent, they're basically told you cannot run because you're going to spoil the race for someone. The best example that people could be familiar with is in 2016, voters who like Jill Stein on the left were told not to actually vote for her because she was just going to spoil the race for Hillary Clinton. But voters on the right who liked libertarian candidate Gary Johnson were told they couldn't vote for him because they'd take votes away from Trump, spoil the election for him and help elect Hillary. And this is why we don't have new competition. With ranked choice voting, no one is a spoiler. So then we can have new candidates come in. And it's not just that new candidates would necessarily be always better than our current candidates. It's that the threat of new competition, the threat of losing your job to someone who appeals better to the consumers is part of the pressure that we need to be able to put on the elected officials when they're legislating. Right now, the only pressures that put on them is by that small portion of voters in the party primary. And now they'll have pressure put from the whole general electorate and they'll have pressure because they know that if they don't do a good job, someone else can run against them. And here's the point. If we do this together, top five primaries, instant runoff general elections, we alter what the winners are incented to do when they're in Washington, D.C. 
These changes are not primarily designed to change who wins. They're designed to change what the winners have the freedom to do and are incented to do and on whose behalf they're doing it. So the proposals that you have in mind are really intended to, both during the election and after, force legislators to cater to a broader swath of the constituency, right? Because you want you want that candidate to understand that she doesn't have to appeal to that minority that votes in a closed primary. You know, that 15% of the Republican or Democratic Party that ordinarily or under another system would have elected her, she now has to confront the entire constituency, which is much more diverse. And she can't afford to be extremist because the reality is that most communities aren't as a whole extremist. So so the idea, as I understand it, of movements like these is to draw everybody to the middle by creating these structural changes that really disincentivize polarization because you can't demonize the five other people because you understand that you need their support if it is an open primary which, you know, layered on to ranked choice voting. Yeah, Laura, that's a really interesting point. I think that one of the benefits of this system will be that when people are legislating, they see in a piece of legislation that if they sign on to a bipartisan compromise, which we may call middle, a middle action, that they are not automatically going to lose their party primary, lose their reelection. So therefore, if they determine that this middle way is the best way, they can sign on to it. Having said that, it is also very important that we not have an election system that only splits the difference, that only drives to what I would sometimes call a squishy middle, because we have a diverse and dynamic country And also we know that innovation rarely arises in any human endeavor from the middle. So we actually need an election system that allows for middle-ish or compromise bipartisan things to get done, but still allows for voices from what can be considered fringes to be heard and have a place within the system without being the sole dictators of results the way they are now. So advancements, like like there's a time when, let's say, the civil rights advances came from what may have been considered fringes, and then eventually they're not fringes. So we don't want to extinguish fringes. We want to see them in that debate of five candidates, for example. And we want that people to have a way to express their views, whether they be middle or not, and then create a functional legislature at the other end of it. So this system of healthy competition gets us the best of both. Catherine has argued that it's simply not enough to reform democracy by simply changing how we elect people in power. We also have to consider how the legislative process itself has contributed to dysfunctions within our democracy. The fair, balanced, cooperative path of policy becoming law, the process we all learned in school, bears no resemblance to the way it actually happens today. 
So yes, we talked about elections machinery, and now we have legislative machinery. And again, legislative machinery is a made-up set of rules, norms, and practices that really dictate the way competition to pass laws unfolds in Washington, D.C. And the legislative machinery has changed over time. In 2013, we had a government shutdown. And one of the things that has been little talked about is that that shutdown never needed to happen. It could have been entirely averted or ended at any point in time if then Speaker John Boehner in the House had allowed a vote on legislation that was already passed by the Senate and that then President Obama was you know, willing and ready to sign. And in fact, the shutdown ended only when Speaker Boehner broke with his party to allow the vote. Now, why didn't we vote on that from the beginning? Because there's something in legislative machinery that has come to be called the Hastert Rule, which says that the majority leader, or in the case of the House, the Speaker, They won't allow the House or the Senate to vote on bills unless a majority of their own party supports that bill, which means that legislation that has majority support in the entire House or the entire Senate will not pass because there'll never even be a vote. And so we had a 16-day shutdown cost us $16 billion, all because one person elected in a low turnout primary in one state decided not to allow that vote. That's what legislative machinery does. And it's that corrupt and perverted all the way through in a lot of cases. New York Times columnist David Brooks recently called this something like the three kings of Washington. And yes, the Speaker of the House and the majority leader take their positions as leaders of their party as their supreme goal over leading the House and the legislation process of the House, um, and certainly over leading the Senate for the purpose of the whole Senate. They're leading their parties, and then we've allowed them completely inappropriately to also become in charge of and basically be able to run the House and the Senate as their own fiefdoms. So we're going further and further away from a democracy, not just in our election system, but also then in our legislative system. And they will need to change those rules, which by, for example, having this conversation begins to have more people aware of the perversion of this system. So Catherine, what, where do we go from here? What do we do about it? How does this become better? Two things. First, let's talk quickly about what we need to do in the, shall I call it, mid to long term. But then let's also talk about a hack, something we could do near term to change up the situation. So first, what we really need to do is, again, look at the system. And what we propose in the book is that we throw out the 3,000 pages of you know, House and Senate rules books, and we throw out this idea of the Hastert rule, and we say, what would we do if we were forming today 
given what we know about neuroscience, about negotiations, about technology-enabled decision-making, about groupthink, all of these things that we've learned, what would be a way that you would organize those people to do their work such that they would be most likely to be able to deliver solutions at the end to get what we call optimal democratic outcomes? And then we would invent a model modern legislative machinery from scratch. That's going to take a while. And then we'd have to adopt it. We should take a look at that because the Constitution says we can have whatever rules we want. So we should hold ourselves to figuring out the best rules for a democracy. In the meantime, we can A, become aware that we have given over our power to a majority leader in the Senate and to the speaker who's the majority leader essentially in the House. And we can start calling for that to be different. But specifically, we divorce the roles of party leadership from the role of chamber leadership. The Speaker of the House is a position that was created in the U.S. Constitution. But the fact that the Speaker is the leader of the majority party and places the needs and partisan goals of the party over the needs of the chamber as a whole is an invention and is entirely optional. What it takes is something super simple and also super hard at the same time. And here's what that would be. In the House, a majority, which is to say 218 people, could vote for a Speaker of the House who is different from the majority leader of the party. And you could elect someone to be the speaker who then runs the chamber for the benefit of the entire chamber, Democrats, Republicans, and rank and file members. Yeah, so much of what you talk about is divorcing party affiliation, really, with the operations of the legislative body so that we start approaching the issue And we start approaching these chambers as independent chambers and not offshoots of specific party control mechanisms. And certainly there's a, there is, as you said, a long goal, a long-term goal and medium-term goals, but absolutely it begins with raising consciousness of the problems that exist, both from a structural perspective and also from an electoral perspective and getting people elected who are sensitive to these issues and who want to do the right thing uh, in terms of promoting democracy and not necessarily promoting the agenda of a party. And I think people in the media and those of us listening have to become more outraged about this collapse of party leadership with agenda control in the Senate and the House. So when we listen to the media and they say, Nancy Pelosi has decided not to do X or or to do Y and do Z, we should say, wow, that's horrible. Regardless of what we think of the policy that they are, you know, opining on, we should see the water that we're swimming in. We should say, oh, it shouldn't be that way. Instead of just being, oh yeah, look at that. That's how it goes. Because it doesn't have to go that way. Absolutely. We, we all need to be not only more aware, but more active and, and, and more involved to fix our democracy, because that is 
the way that we will all create a better tomorrow. Well, Catherine Gale, thank you so much for spending time with us on Deep Dive. It's been an educational and inspiring conversation, and I wish you much luck in every endeavor. Thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be in this conversation. That's Catherine Gale. For more information about solutions to democratic dysfunction, check out Catherine's book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Or read more about ranked choice voting and open primaries at arnoldventures.org. This has been Deep Dive, a production of Arnold Ventures, where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. I'm Laura Arnold. Thanks for listening.